the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Monday edition, a brand new week, a short week this week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. And I am praying that all of you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And this is a time when we who are believers can remember all of the things that we have to be grateful to the Lord for. I tell our church here all the time that gratitude is sort of the fuel that powers our walk with Jesus. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. All you have to do is call us. Dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR our mobile app. Just hit call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Let me give you the number one more time. 340-9585. We are going to be having our men's and women's and youth Bible studies tonight. Paul will be teaching the ladies. And then we have a men's study and a junior high study and a high school age study. So if you come together, your families can sort of go in different directions following the worship. Um, but it's always a great time. Ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com tonight, live stream. The ladies will be, um, Paula's teaching will be live streamed. Um, and then the rest of the week is just kind of short. We're going to have our Wednesday night Bible study here, uh, and we're going to have Friday night, but the church office is going to be closed Thursday and Friday. Um, so I, I just, again, have a great, great Thanksgiving. Let me get to the questions that have been sent in. I've got a couple of them. I'm going to hold one that I think is really important to about the third question just because I want to be sure that more people have the opportunity to hear it. This one comes from Jonathan. He says, how can I talk to a friend who is a professing believer but lives a party lifestyle? Um, Jonathan, one of the things that you can do, maybe it'll give you sort of a, a clue. Uh, listen to the study that I did yesterday uh, here at Calvary Chapel. It's on uh, our live, our website. It's um, You can watch it. Um, um, you know, what we have to do is we have to force uh, people to be honest. Um, I talked a lot about professing believers who aren't producing any fruit yesterday. It was the parable of the sower and the definition given by Jesus. Um, but but the, the, the most important thing, Jonas, you've got it, Jonathan, is that you've got to talk to this friend. Um, what I always do is when people are living a sinful lifestyle and they tell me they're a Christian, I ask the question, how would I ever know by watching your life? And then that leads to another question, what makes you think you're a Christian? And most often they'll say things like, well, I was raised in church or, or uh, I answered an altar call or I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. I mean, anything could, could be. But, the, but then you can say, but does your life 
demonstrate that you're a Christian. And if it doesn't, we want to plant that doubt. It's not that we're judging anybody at all. It's not that we're judging them. It's not that we think that we're better than they are. But we care so much about them. This is a friend. We want them to be in heaven, and we don't want them to be deceived. And anybody who lives a party lifestyle, you can take them to Galatians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 19, or you can take them to 1 Corinthians 6. There's a parallel passage there. And it describes the kinds of lifestyles that if people live those lifestyles, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's pretty straightforward. There's, there's almost no way that they can um, um, debate you because it's, it's, this is what it says. And if they're honest as they look at that scripture, then the Spirit ought to convict them of their sin. One of the things that professing believers who are living sinful lifestyles need to deal with is this whole idea that if they can sin without being convicted of the whole, by the Holy Spirit then there's no way that they're really a Christian at all. Jonathan, I commend you for wanting to talk to this friend, uh, but be direct, do it in love, uh, trade on your relationship. He knows you, he knows your heart, or she, doesn't say he or she, but they know your heart. Say, you know, I care about you, I'm asking you about this because I can't imagine being in heaven without you. But we have to be honest and let them know that people who live lifestyles committed to sin are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's not an occasional fall into sin that I'm talking about. It's that willful lifestyle and sin party lifestyle, you called it, if that characterizes this person's life, then they really need to be concerned about their salvation. Arnie asks this question, Pastor Ron, does Matthew 24, 41 refer to the rapture? Arnie, it is not. Now, for the audience, Matthew 24, 41, it's two men are grinding at a, at a mill. One is taken and one is left, uh, left for judgment. Uh, one of the things we have to remember about Matthew 24, it's the Olivet Discourse, and it is entirely Jewish in construct. It sounds like the rapture. Um, but that's not at all what Jesus is referring to. He's talking about Jews uh, in the Great Tribulation who will be left to suffer the wrath of God. And when it says one will be left, one will be taken, the, the idea is one will be taken away in judgment by the enemy forces or one will be taken by death. Uh, one will make it through, but even the ones who make it through the Great Tribulation are going to have the most difficult time, more difficult than we can imagine. So whether it's Matthew 24, Luke 21, or Mark chapter 13, those are the Olivet Discourse passages. There's no mention at all of the rapture. There's two ways we know that. First, the context of, of the Olivet Discourse is, as I said, entirely Jewish. Uh, but the other thing is when Paul talks about the rapture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, listen, I tell you mystery. That Greek word is mysterion, and it means something not before revealed. So if Jesus would have taught on the rapture, he wouldn't have been able, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wouldn't have, uh, to, to, to call it a mystery. So Arnie, it has nothing to do with the rapture at all. Uh, the rapture is an event that happens before the Great Tribulation. Uh, when we are, the church is removed uh, from the face of the earth, from the place of judgment, then the Antichrist will be revealed. There will be a period of time, three and a half years, where it seems to be relative peace. Um, the man that we call the Antichrist will make a treaty which will allow the dome uh, in Israel, um, the fourth holiest site in the Muslim religion, uh, and Solomon's Temple Mount to be rebuilt. And he's going to be hailed as a great man of peace, but at the three and a half year mark, uh, he's going to demand to be worshipped, and of course, then literally all hell is going to break loose. So it uh, has nothing whatsoever to do with the rapture at all. I hope that helps, Arnie. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is the really important question. Um, that I wanted to get to uh, from Kay from our email inbox. 
She says, hi, Pastor. My husband and I were talking about some people in our family, all Bible and Jesus-believing Christians, holding unforgiveness towards people to whom they have been hurt by. I brought up the verse, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. And then she says this, my husband went further and brought up Jesus himself saying, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And then here's the question, when we are born again, our sins are forgiven, but we are human. Uh, but we are human and will experience others hurting us, sometimes grievously, and it's hard to let go. We help me reconcile the forgiveness we have in him and unforgiveness Jesus warns against. And then she says, appreciate it and happy Thanksgiving. Okay, happy Thanksgiving to you. This is one of the more important questions that we ever get, questions like this on this program. The Christian who refuses to forgive others doesn't understand the gift that he or she has been given by God. That's the first thing, the most obvious thing. If we've been forgiven of sins, our sins against God, the idea of Jesus saying, how dare you refuse to forgive others? And yet we do it all the time because people hurt us. Well, we have to think in the proper perspective about our sins against God versus the sins other people commit against us. And then if we're honest, we can also talk about the sins that people commit against, or we commit against other people. So this idea of forgiveness is important. Jesus, in his model for prayer, um, he said, pray this, among the other things, uh, the other elements in this prayer. He said, Father, forgive, pray this, for, Father, forgive me as I forgive others. Now, the idea there is let me forgive or be forgiven in exactly the same measure as I forgive others. Now, I don't think many of us, Kay, want to pray that prayer. If we're holding on to unforgiveness against other people, then what we're doing is we're saying, okay, Lord, since I'm not forgiving them, forgive me the same way. And, of course, that's a, a losing proposition. So this idea of forgiving sins is important. Now, we are to offer forgiveness, Kay. All of our sins are forgiven, for sure. But the presumption here, and this is the really key element, the presumption here is if you are a Christian, a believer who's been forgiven, then you will be a forgiver. And I think the idea here is if you are unwilling to forgive others, have you yourself really been forgiven? Are you aware of the depth of your sin against God? While we were God's enemies, God loved us, we're told. And yet if somebody hurts us and we hold on to unforgiveness against them, then we're bound by that unforgiveness. Now, a couple of things about forgiveness. As Christians, we have to be willing to extend forgiveness so we're no longer bound by it. Now, forgiveness can only be um, a benefit if somebody receives it. So if you offer forgiveness, but they haven't asked for forgiveness or don't want forgiveness or don't even think they need forgiveness, well then forgiveness is simply that. It's an offer and not a reality. We were forgiven by God, but we had to receive that forgiveness by faith. In the same way, when somebody hurts us, we have to offer forgiveness, but in order for the forgiveness to be extended to them, they have to receive it. Now, that doesn't mean that we stay angry at them. It also doesn't mean that we dwell on the pain that they've caused us. Okay, what it means is that we are no longer bound by that unforgiveness. The harder it is to let go, the more you need to pray. Now, here's what I do, and I've practiced this for a long time, and I can say this without any reservation. Uh, Paula, who lives with me, could, could affirm this. But there's nobody in this world that I'm holding unforgiveness toward. There's nothing that anybody has done to me that causes me pain today. 
Now, when they did things, it caused pain, of course. But here's what I do, Kay. I pray for them. I realize that Jesus loves them. Even though they've hurt me, he loves them as much as he loves me. And I begin to pray for them. Now, it's also true that at times when things are really fresh in our heart, we have to pray sort of through clenched teeth. But we pray, and then supernaturally, what the Holy Spirit does as we pray for people is he changes our heart and mind toward them. And then we have to have the faith to say, Lord, they hurt me, but I don't want to be guilty of holding on to unforgiveness. I don't want my walk with you to be stifled because I'm holding on to unforgiveness against somebody else. So here's what you do. You, you simply pray. I had a man in my life who, before I was saved, who sinned against me so grievously, nearly ruined my life. It's sort of what started my free fall um, before I accepted Jesus. And I hated him so desperately, he consumed my thought process. I, I pray wishing he was dead. When I got saved, and I thought God was so unkind, this guy did everything to me to, to, to literally nearly destroyed my life. When I got saved, the Lord asked me to go to him and ask for forgiveness. And my first reaction was, what, me forgive him? I didn't do anything to him. He tried to ruin my life and almost did. And the Lord spoke to my heart again. He said, yeah, but you wanted him dead. And I really wrestled with this for a couple of weeks. But God would not let go of my heart. So I did it. I knew he was going to take it wrong, like he was okay, and what he did was the right thing. But it didn't matter. I did it. I knew Jesus was pleased. And then I began to pray for him. And, and I'm going to be honest and say it was probably about a year before I realized it as I was praying for him. And I mean praying for him consistently. It was probably about a year. And I realized one day that I really wanted him in heaven. Now, he never got saved, so that's not the issue. But my heart was unburdened. And the Lord taught me this most important lesson that as long as I'm holding unforgiveness, I'm the one who's bound. The person that I'm holding unforgiveness to isn't bound. They probably don't even think about me or what they've done. But I was the one, Kay, who was bound. And God didn't want me to live in that condition. So when Jesus says, forgive, or your Father in heaven will not forgive you, we can't soften that. And that doesn't mean that we could lose our salvation. That's not the point. Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says that, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and what he's talking about is, is the spirit behind the letter of the law. If you want to get to heaven apart from believing in Jesus, you have to be that good. And that's, these are impossible standards. But the key is that forgiveness is presumed. Rather than holding on to something someone's done to us, we truly have to want the best for them. And that's something we can only do by faith. Romans 5, 5 K says that God has poured out his love into our heart by the Holy Spirit that he's given us. And there can be a lot, a lot of times when you have to say, Lord, I don't have that love of my own. My love is conditional. My love is limited right now. I don't even feel very loving toward this person. But by faith, I claim the love that you've poured out in my heart toward that person. And that's the love that I want to extend forgiveness. That's the power that enables me to do it. So I hope that makes sense. I hope that kind of gives you some balance between the tension of holding on. It's hard to let go. That's why we can't do it in our own strength. We have to let Jesus do it. Okay, it is a very, very important question. 340-9585. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Charles on line one. Charles, thanks for calling. You're on the air. 
Hey, Pastor Ron, how you doing today? I'm doing really well, Charles. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, I just want to let you, first off, that was a great service yesterday. Oh, thanks. That was an awesome service. I enjoyed it. Now, my question is this. Hey, I know the nurses, you know, we got to have faith and, and forgive and, and stuff like that. When, when I said, let me tell you a little background. When I first got in with my wife's family, they're the, my wife's family is the ones that actually brought, brought me to the Lord. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love the Lord. You know, my wife and I, you know, we try to do our Bible studies, with, with, you know, every day, but, you know, unforeseen circumstances happen. Mm-hmm. But my thing is, when you have family members that are quote-unquote Christians and they continuously put you down and they continuously talk against you, uh, how are we supposed to keep going through that and have faith that God's going to prevail on our end? You know, like my, my wife and I were basically going to be homeless within the next couple of weeks. And the family has a way to help, but they want to, you know, they don't want to help, you know, and we're continuously leaning on, on God, you know, and his, and his grace to, to show something, you know, some t- something that's going to be able to help us, you know, move forward. But like the family, you know, now all of a sudden they all stop going to church. They all stop reading the Bible. Uh, they they listen to you know the secular music. They choose you know hockey games over you know spending time with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they get everything they want. You know, they don't have a want. They don't have a need or anything that's that. You know, they don't have a need for anything. But yet, my wife and I, we you know, we just put our heads down and and run forward and we get nothing you know how how would you say something to, to, for somebody to just continuously keep the faith and nothing happens yeah charles um i'm going to ask you to to hang up and listen on the radio because my answer is going to be okay, really important I, okay I and we're inside we're inside four minutes now so i'm probably going to carry this over to the uh other side of the break as well that's how important it is let me address first of all the 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 idea that um um you're going through something difficult and um you know they're sort of not in it with you they're not there um charles one of the things and, and this is from personal experience when i ruined everything in my life. I went from being uh, really, really wealthy, lost everything, uh, and all because of my sin. Um, I, I own responsibility. Um, but but I was in exactly that situation, and the people that were in a position to be able to help me uh, really didn't want to. And and I saw that, and, and even though I was a brand new Christian, I still was proud, so I'm going to do this on my own. Um, and, and the thing that really, really changed everything for me was uh, I leaned only on Jesus, expecting nothing from anyone else. And he took care of me, and he took care of Paula. And every day he met us with grace. So um, the, the, in your situation, the first thing that I would tell you to do is expect nothing from people. And put yourself in God's hands alone. And uh, I know how scary that is because you don't know where you're going to be. You don't know how you're going to have a roof over your head. You don't know how you're going to eat. I understand those things. But, but Paula and I learned in that time we actually were living in a garage. Somebody offered us a garage and we were living in a garage. And Paula and I learned that God's grace was really enough. That Jesus' presence every day in that garage could make that a beautiful place. It's where Paula and I learned how to be a husband and wife in Christ. How to be content. Paul says learn to be content. He actually said learn the secret of being content in every circumstance. Um, The idea that it's a secret, Charles, means that it's something that, that we've got to experience by faith. And Paul and I did that. 
and we did it one day at a time. I hate to sound like an athlete giving a cliche answer in an interview, but literally we get up every day and say, what about me, Lord, and what about today? And he was always there. And Charles, we got to see the hand of God move in our lives in ways that you can't possibly imagine. Almost every day, I remember um, uh, finding uh, a little bit of money on the street when we had nothing to eat. I remember when we would have to park downhill. Uh, we lived in a city with it was on a pretty steep incline, and we'd drive to a gas station, put a dollar's worth of gas in, sometimes 50 cents worth of gas. Um, but, but every day God was there, and the joy that we had in the middle of the fear and in the middle of the difficulties was, was um, incomparable. And unless you let God move in your life, You'll never experience that. So without answers, just say, Lord, I'm in your hands. Now, I don't know your circumstance, Charles, obviously, um, but own any responsibility you have for your condition and then put yourself in the hand of God and let him help. I'm going to come back to this on the other side of the break. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We will be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the monday show did i tell you it's thanksgiving week i have so much that i'm grateful for a couple of prayer requests before i get to the rest of charles answer um our church today just lost a dear lady um, who went to be uh, with Jesus, um, my original elder, his mom, um, wonderful lady, and now she's enjoying her reward. I appreciate prayers for the family. Um, we'll do that, and then the other prayer request, um, an urgent one for uh, a beautiful woman in our church named uh, Pamela. Uh, her husband is Robert. Um, and she's um, really sick. She's been struggling with fighting cancer for quite some time. And it's come back. And, you know, it's just hard, the chemo. And she's had an adverse reaction again. And we just would ask, uh, covet your prayers for Pamela and Robert. I would appreciate it more than you can possibly know. I actually believe in prayer. So, Charles, let me get back to you, and then we'll get to some of the other questions. Uh, I, I was just told by my producer that uh, you actually came forward in third service yesterday to give your heart to Jesus. So, uh, God bless you for that, and um, you're about to embark, Charles, on a, um, a life that is different than anything you ever could imagine, so much richer and fuller and filled with joy, even in the middle of these difficult times. You know, I often tell people that when you're a brand new believer, ask God for big things. He likes to show off. He's sort of making deposits in your faith account. So don't worry about what anybody else is doing or how they're treating you. Don't worry about that they would rather do uh, worldly stuff than, than uh, Jesus stuff. Uh, you be a light. You and your wife be a light for the people who are going to now start watching you. And God will use you to convict them of their shortcomings or their lukewarmness or whatever the situation is with them. But as for you, don't worry about anything else. You've got two weeks, you said, before you're going to be homeless. Give God a chance to move. This is a time when you and your wife really need to be together in the Word. You need to be together in prayer. You need to together take walks with Jesus and just talk to Him. Uh, times when you can cry out from the fears in your heart, He gets it. But let your family members now, the ones that are causing you this pain, let them see your joy and your faith in the middle of this difficulty. And I promise you God will use it 
to convict them of their own relationship issues with the Lord. So Charles, let God direct your steps. When I was facing homelessness, I tried to my shame uh, to fix things, doing things in a worldly way, and and um, the Lord just wasn't going to let go of me. He wasn't going to let me do that. And so nothing that I tried worked. When I finally just said, Jesus, I'm homeless. We're going to be homeless with you. Protect us. Provide for us. I can't tell you how faithful, wonderfully faithful he was. And that was 20, almost eight years ago. About 27 years ago now, because that was in my first year with the Lord. And um, it is amazing how much he taught me to trust him. So, Charles, I hope that helps. I'll be praying for you. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls or questions. Here is a question from Carl. What's your opinion on the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church? Carl, um, I, I think they're sad, um, a sad state of, of what's happened in the world that we live in. You know, the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church are sister churches. Uh, it's Episcopal in the United States. It's the Anglican Church in England. Uh, the Anglican Church is actually the National Church of England. Um, and here's my opinion. They've thrown away the Word of God, and they did it a long time ago. And uh, when you throw away the Word of God, you're throwing away Jesus. So um, uh, the idea that that we even call them churches now is, is troubling, uh, because they're really nothing more than places where people gather together in their misery. Um, there are Christians there. I, I want to be clear about that, but they are few and far between. Um, and it's just uh, a, a really, really sad commentary on how far things have gone. Uh, these churches are churches with rich traditions. Uh, now the Episcopal Church in this country is ordaining homosexuals uh, as bishops. Um, why would they do that? Because they've thrown away the Word of God, and the Word means nothing to them. Uh, and the result is people aren't growing. Instead, people are dying. So... Um, it's certainly not something that I could recommend. Um, avoid it. Find a church that teaches the Bible. I hope that helps. Joshua says, What is the difference between expository preaching and topical preaching, and which is better? Uh, Joshua, what I do, um, uh, I'm an expository teacher. I probably take it a little bit to an extreme that others don't. Um, you know, we teach it uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, wherever we ended up uh, on Sunday, we will start in the next verse um, the following Sunday. And expository Preaching is simply, uh, this is what it says, this is what it means, and this is how it applies in our lives. Um, we're not trying to make up things. We're not, we're not bringing an agenda. We're just teaching the Word line after line. And, and that's expository. To exposit something is to look at the text and take something from it rather than look at the text and pour something into it. And unfortunately, topical preaching often does that. They'll take a, a verse that sort of supports the, 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 the issue that they're dealing with, and then they'll craft a sermon. Now, there are some great topical preachers, I mean, some great, great men of God, um, but they're not expositing the text. They're simply adapting the text to deal with an issue that they would say God's put in their heart. Um, Joshua, I obviously think expository preaching is best. I think it's best because that's what we do, and I feel we do it because that's what the Lord has led us to do. Uh, I never get to pick out a topic. I never have to wonder what I'm going to preach about next week. I don't have to get creative. Um, I'm not a really creative guy. Um, and, and so I, I simply know. Last week I finished uh, with the parable of the sower last Sunday. Um, next Sunday we're going to go into the next verses, and uh, I'll get my text from there. And all I have to do is, is teach the Bible. The other good thing, Joshua, about this 
Now, the way we do it is that I never avoid, I'm unable this way to avoid any topics. You know, if I would come into church next Sunday and say, you know what, we're going to skip this section um, because it's not particularly interesting, the people in my church would, would uh, object to that. They're used to what we do and what we have been doing produces fruit and people hear the word and the word changes them. Um, I'm not only picking happy topics, I'm not disqualifying difficult topics. There's just verse by verse, there's nothing that we can miss. Doctrine, systematic theology, um, we talk about some really difficult issues, some contemporary, um, but we do it because the text demands that we do it. So I'm not doing a series on the Holy Spirit or a series on family and marriage. Um, I personally think that those things have no place in the Sunday gathering together of the saints. Um, I think there are times to talk about marriage and families. In fact, Paul and I uh, will be in Garland, Texas in January doing a marriage conference. But we would never here at Calvary Chapel take a Sunday to do anything other than teach the Bible what it says, what it means, and how we can use it. So Joshua, I hope that makes sense to you. Here is an anonymous question. It says, if a soldier kills in battle, is he or she guilty of murder? Um, no. Um, uh, there are just wars. There are just reasons to kill. Uh, the same thing, Anonymous, would be true for our police officers if they have to use their weapons in the line of duty. Um, so, um, no, it's not murder at all. The self-defense uh, is another reason that if we would would be in an unfortunate situation where we'd have to shoot somebody to defend our lives or the lives of our family. None of that is murder. Um, we're discharging our duty uh, or we are simply uh, protecting our lives, preserving our lives. Uh, so um, if a soldier has to kill in battle, uh, as horrible as that is, um, you know, we can read our Bible and there's all kinds of wars that people are killed in. So there are just wars. I'm not suggesting that the wars we in we have been in are just or unjust. That's not the point. But when we take the oath of duty in the military and we have to use our weapon. That's why we're trained. That's why they're trained. I don't want to imply that I've been in the military. I've not. But um, we're trained to do our job. If you have to do it, that is not murder. I will say this, if you are asking this personally, maybe you're that soldier or somebody in your family is that soldier, um, he or she needs to talk to people. This is not a badly want to fight alone. I, I would immediately suggest that you go to your pastor and, and work through the conflicting emotions you know, we Christians, we love people. If we have to do something like this, um, we need to talk about it. There are people in your church who have been through this. I promise you, in San Antonio area especially, there are people who have been through this. I had a, a similar question a couple of months ago from a police officer who had to discharge his weapon. And, um, you know, he needs to talk to other Christian cops. These aren't burdens that we are to carry alone. Um, we need to open up. hope that helps. Um, we have a bunch of veterans here who have been in that situation who could help as well. So um, probably every church in San Antonio does. Comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God, Second Corinthians 1 says. So Emory wants to know, what happens to people who disagree with the Bible? Well, Emory, if those people die in disagreement with the Bible, they spend eternity in hell. It's that simple. And the Bible is not something that we get the right to critique. Now, we can study it and we can, can, can work to understand it. But, but remember, it's God's Word. It is literally the, the breath of God pushing the pen of men. And so if we disagree with the Bible, we're in sin. Now, 
when you say what happens to people, if those people are professing Christians, we need to sit those people down and say, you know, our responsibility to carry the name Christ, our responsibility is to agree with Jesus. So what we've got to do is we've got to take our opinions and kind of throw them in the trash, the spiritual trash, the emotional trash, where they belong. And we've got to be transformed, be changed, Paul says, by the renewing of our mind. The only place we can make our mind new every day is in the living, breathing Word of God. So if there is somebody who says, well, you know, um, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. Well, I disagree because I think people have the right to love themselves. That person is not a Christian or at the very best is a brand new Christian who hasn't had the opportunity yet to let his mind be transformed by the renewing of his mind. So we have no right to our opinion. We have no right to disagree with God. We understand that he makes the rules. Our job is to follow them. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And Emory, if there are parts of your Bible that you disagree with, you need to get in line. It's just that simple. Jesus, in these last days, is drawing a line in the spiritual sand. And it's getting deeper and deeper and more and more pronounced. And we have to decide on whose side of that line are we on. Are we on the side of the line that the world is on, accepting any and all behavior? Or are we on Jesus' side of that line? We take a stand for righteousness, knowing that only one man was righteous, just Jesus. And since by believing in him, he gave us his righteousness and took away our sin, then we've got to understand that there's no room for disagreement. So I hope that kind of addresses your question, but we expect the world to disagree. But we sure shouldn't expect Christians to disagree. Here's an anonymous question. If someone is addicted to a sinful behavior like drinking or sex, does their addiction excuse what they do since they can't help themselves? Uh, anonymous, the answer is no. Um, you know, uh, addicted is a nice word that we've culturalized to explain or rationalize our sin. The idea that I can't help myself is, is, is in contradistinction to the promises made to us in the Word of God. You know, when you say drinking, uh, I, I would add drugs. You know, our bodies only remain physically addicted as long as, as the, the, the substance is in our system. Once a system goes, there's no physical addiction. Now, I understand the mental part of this. Uh, I understand behavior that we've become addicted to. But you see, that's why the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. Um, a sex addict, that's the silliest thing ever. It's been so popularized by our world. Somebody gets caught cheating and they enter sex addiction rehab uh, so that suddenly everybody is sympathetic toward them. We shouldn't be sympathetic toward people who have sex with people they're not married to. Which some it's sin, you need to repent. And they can help themselves. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen. It says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. In other words, whatever you're going through or being tempted by, other people have been tempted by it and come through it. And then the next words are these, and God is faithful. Then say it. I'm faithful, you're faithful, God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And he will always provide a way out so we can stand up under the temptation. In other words, so we can deal with it victoriously. So the minute we start thinking, well, addiction excuses somebody's behavior because they really can't help themselves or they're predisposed to this, um, we're, we've forgotten what the Word says. And we've replaced what the Word says with what the world that we live in says. So there's no conceivable excuse for sin. But anonymous, there is an answer for sin, all sin. And that answer is, of course, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes to live in you, 
He takes over. That's what being born again is. I'm no longer living for me, but now, Jesus, it's just you and me. I'm living for you. Instead of saying yes to all of those things, I'm now going to say no to me, to those temptations, so that I can say yes to you every day. And the only excuse, it won't allow them to continue to sin, but the only excuse is that people don't stop sinning because they don't want to. So be careful how you throw on the word addicted. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question I'll make people mad with. This is from Lenny. I've heard you say Mormonism is a cult, but that Catholicism is not. What's the difference if they're both false? Um, the difference is their view of Jesus. Uh, something is only a cult... Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, it's only a cult if they distort the person of Jesus Christ. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Both of them created beings. Jesus is creator God. And so they're cult because they've taken the person of Jesus, the character of Jesus and changed it. Now the difference with Catholicism is that the uh, Catholics have the, the, the same Father, the same Son, and the same Holy Spirit that we who are not Catholics do. We who are born again. And while the doctrine of Catholicism is false, it's not a cult, it's a religion. It's just like Judaism is not a cult, it's a religion because their view of the Father is the same one as ours. They've got Jesus wrong, of course, and the Holy Spirit they don't understand. But they're not a cult. Inside the Catholic Church are some real Christians, Lenny. I don't understand it. The doctrine is so contrary to what the Bible teaches and even harmful and antithetical to what the Bible teaches. For the life of me I can't understand why any born-again believer any born-again believer would stay in the Catholic Church. The problem of course is they do. Let's go to Andrew on line one. Andrew, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I was reading the Bible recently, and I came across Luke 14, uh, 25 through 33. And it says, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, tower does not uh, first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. That's verse 28. And then he says, um, the verse 33, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. In Luke 18, 22, he said, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. See all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have a treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So I'd like to know if you've done that, because that's in the Bible. And if you haven't, do you believe you're going to hell? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. I don't know what your what point you're trying to make is. Um, you know, I'm gonna we're in the Gospel of Luke um, on Sunday, so I'll be teaching this um, pretty soon. We're in we're in chapter eight right now. Um, what Jesus is talking about is priorities. Now, I, I don't have much, Andrew, if if that's your point, if you're trying to intimate that that I've, I'm taking advantage of people or something I, I, don't, I don't understand. But here, here's what I can tell you. We've surrendered everything to the Lord. That doesn't mean we have a perfect walk with the Lord. Um, when Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor... Um, I, Jesus told the rich young ruler that 
because the rich young ruler was possessed by his possessions. It's hard, Jesus said, for a rich man to go to heaven. It's easier, he said, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that's hyperbole, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is because rich people trust in their riches. And this whole passage in Luke chapter 14 is, is Jesus looking at these large crowds of people, these religious leaders especially, who are plotting his murder, and he's saying, um, if you want to come to the banquet that I'm talking about, then you've got to believe in me, and you've got to abandon everything to me. He will later say that to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross. Luke adds daily, uh, and follow me. So um, we have a house, and we've got a little tiny bit of money that we go by on, get by on. Uh, we take um, um, an exceptionally modest salary, and we walk by faith and trust God, and we realize that everything we have belongs to Him. Um, and yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. So Andrew, again, you, you asked the question as though you had sort of an agenda, so if, if you want to be honest with me, um, call tomorrow and let me know what's your problem and uh, why, you're, why you're arguing about it. We have one minute. Let's see if I have a one-minute question. Um, what is the... Well, no, that's not a one-minute question. Here's a one-minute question. If I died with unrepentant sin, would I go to heaven or hell? It depends on whether or not you're born again. If you're born again, you're going to heaven because your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. But if your unrepentant sin has kept you away from Jesus, you're not born again, then no, you would go to hell. We will keep that and answer a little bit more in detail tomorrow. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Remember, it's Thanksgiving week. You're listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back on AM 630 The Word tomorrow at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.